Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbats, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, I welcome best-selling author and journalist Michael Pollan. He is best known for his work exploring botany, culture, and human consciousness in remarkable books such as The Botany of Desire, The Omnivore's Dilemma, How to Change Your Mind, and This is Your Mind on Plants. We are also joined by legendary ethnopharmacologist Dennis McKenna, who has conducted field research in the Peruvian, Colombian and Brazilian Amazon. Dennis has co-authored several books on pharmacology and botany, and has contributed a foreword to his brother Terence's seminal book, Food of the Gods, which was reissued earlier this year. We will be discussing specific medicines and our cultural and evolutionary codependence. to Liberia Online, um, where I'm delighted to uh, host Dennis McKenna and Michael Pollan. Um, Michael's um, new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, uh, was published earlier in the month. Uh, Dennis has written a foreword uh, to his late brother Terence's uh, seminal classic, Food of the Gods. Um, so the opportunity to get both gents uh, in the same room uh, metaphorically to discuss uh, their research and experience is just too good to pass up. Um, so I'm going to just briefly introduce the, um, uh, the two gents and then uh, we'll, we'll open up uh, the discussion. So Dennis is an ethnopharmacologist, uh, re- uh, research pharmacognosist, lecturer and author who has conducted field research in the Peruvian, Colombian and Brazilian Amazon. Uh, Dennis has co-authored several books on uh, pharmacology and botany and has contributed to a uh, forward to his late brother's classic, which I've just mentioned. Uh, Michael is an author and journalist who is currently Knight Professor of Science and Journalism at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. He is best known for his work exploring botany, culture and human consciousness. Um, this is Your Mind on Plants, focuses on specific uh, medicines uh, sedatives, stimulants, and uh, psychedelics, and our cultural and evolutionary codependence uh, echoes uh, an earlier book by Michael uh, titled *The Botany of Desire*, which is one of my all-time favourites of uh, non-fiction. And so, I guess the opening question, Michael, um, was this a natural progression in your curiosity and uh, writing, and how did you arrive at uh, exploring these specific uh, psychoactive medicines. Yeah, thank you, Lloyd. Thanks for your question, and and thanks to Dennis for being here with us. Dennis is one of my intellectual heroes and somebody I've learned a lot uh, from over the years. Um, and thanks to the whole Second Home community. Uh, I wish I could be there in person with you. It's such a special place. Um, so I have always been interested in the... Uh, the human engagement with plants and how they change us and we change them. And I mean, going back to my time as a gardener, um, you know, it really grew out of my time in the garden. Um, and in bot- botany of desire, I did look at this symbiosis. Um, and, uh, I have been, you know, all my work has really been about this, this relationship. And, um, and if that's at the center of the work, there are a couple big branches that come off of that trunk. Um, one is food and agriculture. And of course, I wrote several books about that. That's perhaps the most important thing we use plants for. And, and our engagement with them 
to produce food changes the world more than anything else we do. Changes the, the, the composition of species, the landscape, and now we know the atmosphere uh, because food is a giant contributor to climate change. But then there's always been in the back of my head, and it pops up from time to time, as in um, Botany and Desire, this interest in this very curious thing plants do for us, which is to change our consciousness. That's really weird. Um, and it's, it's a little weird that that turns out to be a universal desire um, to change the textures of consciousness and sometimes change consciousness in more radical ways. And I've been curious as to why plants produce compounds that do that, why we like them, why drug taking hasn't been, which, which involves obvious risks, right, of, um, of not just overdose, because a lot of these drugs are, are toxic at, at, at some doses, but also risk of accident, risk of, you know, being preyed on. Um, it, makes, it makes you uh, discombobulate you in ways that you would think natural selection would do away with. So this, this human desire, what is it good for? What have drugs given us? Um, and this is, I know, something Dennis knows a whole lot about. Um, and that is, you know, I, and I really wanted to explore that. I, I started on it in Botany of Desire, but there was so much more to be said. And um, uh, so that's what brought me to this book, um, to take a deep dive into three plants, plant-based chemicals, and see if we can't uh, learn something about us. Because I see, I see these relationships as mirrors that teach us not just about the plant world, but about our world, our minds, uh, our desires, what makes us tick, which finally is you know, what we're all interested in discovering. And um, how about yourself, Dennis? Um, you've been in this uh, field for, well, a lifetime. Um, so how, how did you arrive at studying something uh, like psychoactive plants um, and our, our relationship to culture? Uh, well, thank you. Yes, I have been around in this space longer than I care to think about. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I grew up, I was a child of the 60s. I was born in 1950. So the 60s were my teenage years, particularly toward the end of that. Uh, it was a really, it was a time of turmoil, you know, political and social. And my brother was out in California and he's four years older. He was four years older than me and led me into uh, a lot of areas where I probably, you know, was not ready to go. But anyway, we were, we shared this curiosity about altered states. We were actually, uh, both of us were, uh, you know, we were interested in shamanism and Jungian psychology and alchemy and all of these things. But I do have to say that science fiction was probably an outsized influencer on both of us you know and science fiction for those of you that know it can be a mind stretcher you know and it's a place where radical wild ideas can can come forth and i think one of the things that appealed to terry and me terence and me you know at that time in the late 60s was this idea and we were just discovering psychedelics, and there wasn't much to discover. There was LSD, occasionally mescaline. Uh, my brother was very good at working the matrix, so he had DMT, which was very rare in those days. 
But DMT became the focus of our interest and kind of the, the driver of our curiosity. Because again, with this idea of, you know, a, this sort of uh, science fiction perspective, uh, you know, we thought it was like another dimension and maybe it is another dimension and maybe these, these substances can, can get you there. That was kind of the operating, you know, uh, that's what drove the curiosity. And I don't think that question is completely resolved, but I got into it essentially out of curiosity. I mean, Terrence and I were always interested in weird stuff, you know, and I have to credit my dad to a certain degree because he was, he was very invested in being an ordinary person. It was like a postdoc post war mindset. He just wanted to come home from the war and live a normal life, but he wasn't a normal person. He was, in, he was too smart. He was interested in, too much. And he is the one that introduced us to science fiction and fate magazine. He, he traveled for a living. He'd come back on weekends and bring these copies of fate magazine, which was all about the paranormal and, you know, yetis and, you, you know, UFOs and all of this stuff. And occasionally drugs. They had interesting articles about like the Peruvian uh, dream beverage and, you know, in the land of mescaline and they had these kinds of things. So we, that was a part of our background. And then it was just curiosity that, uh, that drove us. And, you know, Terrence and I have this sort of legend, but, but I didn't become a serious scientist about it until I started graduate school in 1980 at the University of British Columbia and, and uh, uh, you know, determined to investigate ayahuasca. I had worked on mushrooms before. Terry and I published a book called The, the uh, Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide, which started out as a hobby. You know, we figured out how to grow these critters. Then we published a little pamphlet, actually, that became very influential in, in the society. So uh, lots of people learned their methods from that and got their first mushroom experiences from that. So I don't want to go on too long, but that's kind of what got me started. Uh, that's, that's a great, great um, kind of intro into how you guys got into the field. Um, I, I guess the kind of burning question is um, that our recent knowledge of, of uh, psych uh, psychedelic, psychoactive plants is quite recent, but um, the human relationship is more kind of uh, archaic. It goes back millennia. How, um, how, how did we as a species um, discover these? I know, Michael, you talk about uh, caffeine um, being discovered by like a, a goat herder um, observing his livestock just going wild on berries. But um, how, how did we go back further? How do you discover this? Yeah. Story? Well, I, I'm going to defer to Dennis on this one because he knows his ethnobotany better than I do. But but one of the reasons in this new book I wanted to look at mescaline was because uh, it may be the oldest psychedelic that we know of, that we have an archaeological record for it. Uh, there's evidence of human use in Texas and Mexico uh, 6,000 years ago, which is kind of incredible. And that's a signal that, you know, these native peoples 
have a deeper familiarity than we do with psychedelic substances and may have something to teach us about their use. What's interesting about caffeine is it's so recent. Um, so it has a, it has a recorded history, whether the, uh, the goat herder story is true or not. It may be a legend. Um, but it, you know, I mean, we learn a lot by observing the behavior of animals and, um, and the idea is that this guy, he was in, I think, Ethiopia, and his goats, when they chewed on the berries on a particular shrub, the red berries, they would get frisky and stay up all night. Uh, and then he supposedly brought these berries to uh, a monk who turned them into a beverage. Um, but it's, it's fairly recent history compared to the opiates or cannabis or mescaline or alcohol. And that's one of the reasons I was so interested in caffeine, because you can look at the before and after um, mm -hmm. Europe before caffeine and Europe after caffeine. And so that's why it's such a great case study for how a plant chemical influences our development as, a, as people. I mean, in that case, not evolution so much, but, but our, the rise of, of capitalism and the enlightenment and the age of reason. We can really see um, the impact. And, uh, and, um, but as for the ancient shamanic use, why were people, how did people discover that? I don't know, Dennis, what would you say? Well, I think, I think in part it's, it's a trial and error. You know, mm. I think that people are inherently curious and, uh, and, you know, what I love about Michael's perspective and my perspective about all this is that we're totally in sync Usually when we talk about psychedelics, you know, the focus is on the cultural context and, you know, the historical context and, and all that. But there's a wider perspective, which Michael and I share, which is that this is a co-evolutionary process. And he's talked so well and elegantly in so many places about the fact that these alliances with plants whether we use them for food or medicine or other purposes, this is, this is symbiosis. You know, this is a, a alliance between different species for mutual benefits. So that's really what symbiosis is. And I think what you're looking at here is a co-evolutionary phenomenon, which is why, uh, you know, it's plausible. Uh, not necessarily, certainly not proven, but it's not completely crazy to suggest that, for example, evolving hominids in Northern Africa two million years ago were eating mushrooms. You know, they probably were because we know enough about that, that uh, environment at that time to infer reasonably. I mean, we know it was much wetter. You know, there were seasonal rainfalls. We know that there were cattle in the area, which is... Uh, you know, the dung of which the mushrooms grow on. And we know that there were hominids in the area. So you can put those things together and, and speculate, you know, that probably people, you know, those evolving hominids were consuming mushrooms. And what effect might that have had, you know, on the emergence of consciousness, the emergence of language and the imagination and all that. Again, I, I tend to digress. I don't want to... But a point I want to make is that plants mediate plants. A, a famous botanist once said, plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior. You know, animals react to their environment through behavior. They can run away. They can stay and fight. Plants are stuck in one place. 
So they mediate their environment, they mediate their relationships with their environment through chemistry, you know, at which they are very good because they've mastered photosynthesis, you know, so they can make all these secondary compounds that, that mediate their environment with everything, other plants, insects, fungi and bacteria in the soil, uh, mammals that might want to nibble on them, like us, and that's how they optimize their relationships with, uh, uh, you know, with other organisms in their environment. Uh, it's all the language of plants is chemistry, essentially. And some of the secondary compounds that plants have happened to evolve over millions and millions of years happen to resemble neurotransmitters, you know, and they, they hit those neural networks in the in the human brain, and we find they have interesting effects. This is not an accident. These chemicals all evolved out of the same evolutionary mix. You know, serotonin, for example, you know, we think of serotonin as a neurotransmitter, you know, in mammals, in the mammalian brain and, and so on. But serotonin is all over in nature. Many, many plants contain serotonin, you know, so, uh, these, these secondary compounds become purpose to whatever symbiotic relationships may be convenient. And the plant's agenda and the fungi agenda, I think, is pretty simple. They just want to grow and spread, you know. And so whatever facilitates that for them through these chemically mediated symbiotic alliances is uh, good for the plant. So something that I want to follow up on there that's really interesting. I mean, yes, it is. I mean, I just want to underline this. How remarkable that a plant could come up with a, develop a chemical that fits precisely. That is the precise key to fit in a human brain and make something happen. But a lot of these chemicals begin um, with another purpose, um, yes. which is to say they're defense chemicals. And... Um, why do you think it's true that a plant trying to defend itself chemically would create a chemical that does a lot more than just kill a pest? Because it's more complicated than just defense. You know, some of these chemicals are defense chemicals for sure. And others, and, and that's, you know, that's one of their purposes. Some of them are, uh, signaling chemicals, you know, they send a message. This is these things are chemical messengers. In, in you know, consistent with the idea that that you know plants are that this is a language for plants. This is how they mediate their relationships with things in the environment. So, and it also depends on what context. A, a, a chemical that might be a repellent or a toxin in certain situations. For example, beta carbolines from ayahuasca are a good are a good example. You know, I mean, in some situations they're antiviral, they're antimicrobial, they interact with their environment on that way. But in other cases, it's their neuropharmacology that becomes more important because they're MAO inhibitors and they potentiate tryptamines. So they're basically three functions. Uh, uh, you know, uh, protection, the repellent function, the signaling function. And it's interesting when the signal is, I mean, the repellent message is go away, leave me alone. I don't want to be molested and you'll 
regret it if you do. But it gets more interesting when the signal is come closer. Yeah. Let's do stuff together. Let's form symbiosis together and see what comes out of that. So symbiosis is is also mediated by these plant plant chemical messengers. And it's an important point that you make, Michael, which is uh you know, psilocybin or other, I mean, these things were around in the environment. Plants were making them millions of years before there were humans or anything resembling complex nervous systems, you know, but they became adapted as complex nervous systems evolved. These these chemicals were already there and in some ways were the precursors of them. For example, psilocybin is a good Example, mushrooms, basidiomycetes showed up about 75 million years ago, long before there were any primates to appreciate psilocybin, you know, and psilocybin was there and it had multiple functions. It still does, you know, recent, recent work on the horizontal gene transfer of psilocybin biosynthesis complex indicates that you know, it was important for the mushrooms long before there were humans. It wasn't evolved for us, but in the fullness of evolutionary time, we started interacting with these with these fungi, consuming them, and those that had this chemical in it may have had an evolutionary advantage in the sense that they made us, you know, they gave us a motivation to collect them, you know, spread them, preserve them, and so on. So, some so, of them, yeah. Uh, one, one of the things that's really interesting, too, is that in some cases, the plant itself can repurpose a chemical. So, yes. caffeine is a defense it, chemical, right? It repels exactly. insects. It also appears to make it hard for other plants to grow nearby. The leaves fall on the ground and, and essentially poison it for other plants. Mm-hmm. But then we recently learned that some classes of plant make caffeine this supposed pesticide in their nectar and they're using it to attract bees and honeybees share our love of caffeine as it turns out they're getting a tiny dose not enough to harm them but enough apparently and this is recent research that was done in england to um uh help the bee remember where it got that buzz. I mean, we don't actually know if they have any phenomenology but uh, about this. Um, and, uh, and remember where it was and return to those flowers preferentially because of that reward. So there is a plant that is, is just taking the exact same molecule and using it for two diametrically opposed purposes. And that's quite remarkable. Right. And not uncommon. I mean, plant caffeine is a, is a great example. As you say, it's a good insecticide, uh, you know, and it's a, it's a central nervous system stimulant and uh, it's a plant growth inhibitor. It's all of these things. So these chemicals that plants are so good at spinning out these so-called secondary compounds, uh, you know, have generally multiple purposes in in the ecosystem. You know, they're uh, they they have an effect on the ecosystem, and we're part of that ecosystem. You know, I mean, it, it's interesting. For example, with psilocybin, I've I've thought you could think of psilocybin in a sense as a kind of a neuro eco hormone. 
you know, in, in the fungal world, we uh, there's a group of fungi in the ascomycetes, closely related to mushrooms, but not a, a different a different phylum slightly, or you know, a different. I'm not sure what the term is, but phylogenetically a little different. But the cordyceps mushrooms, which have evolved extremely complex symbioses with insects where the fungus actually grows into the brains of insects. Is that insects. symbiosis, though, since the... Um, well, yeah, it is a kind of symbiosis. I mean, it's a but parasitism. But screwed completely. <laughs> yeah, it's a parasitism, but that's a symbiosis. There are various kinds of symbiosis. This is not, this is not much benefit for the insect. In this case, the mushroom or the cordyceps fungus is taking over the behavior of the insect and directing it to act in ways that optimize spore dispersal. It will essentially infect the ant or the caterpillar, whatever, uh, and it will uh, uh, direct its behavior to climb up a blade of grass to optimize its position for spore dispersal. Then it will kill it and, and it will be paralyzed clinging to this blade of grass. And then the the cordyceps will sporulate. It'll form the After bursting out of its head. And it comes bursting out of its head, right. So in this case, it's enslaved the insect, yeah. you know. And I'm thinking psilocybin may have a similar effect. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to physically infect us, but it produces this molecule, which we find delightful and interesting. So we have a motive to... Uh, consume that molecule and to make sure that there are mushrooms around. So and to spreading it inadvertently. And, I remember and when to I spreading was, uh, it. Yeah. So I it doesn't sick. have to go so far as to actually physically infect it. We just happen to appreciate, um, you know, it's chemical creativity. I guess you could say. Uh, I remember going mushroom hunting for psilocybes with uh, our mutual friend Paul Stamets in. Um, well, I can't say where, but we were looking for um, uh, Psilocybe azurescens, which is a rare and mm -hmm. very potent uh, variety of uh, psilocybin. And we went to this campground and uh, we noticed that most of them were growing very close to the parking lot. <laughs> and, um, and he said at some point, one of the indicator species for uh, Psilocybe azurescens is the Winnebago the trailer <laughs> right and so people were gathering them and carrying them back to the trailer and of course whenever you gather mushrooms you're spreading spores without knowing it and uh, exactly so we see that um we yeah. see what the mushroom gained from that relationship um and, and the mushrooms do often show up they they become associated with human settlements you know and human disturbance of of the of the landscape and so on uh you know and and uh, uh, you know, particularly like that's the association with pastoral communities, you know, as these pastoral cultures move out of their uh, area of origin into new regions, they take their cattle with them and they take their mushrooms with them. You know, the mushrooms kind of tag along to this human cattle alliance that's going on. So, you know, you can, you can go into any, pretty much any pasture in a tropical area where there's rainfall on their cattle, you're going to find mushrooms. You're going to find Psilocybe cubensis. It's a pan-tropical mushroom, very common in that kind of environment, which is not unlike the environment that you'd have in Northern Africa two million years ago. 
you know, yeah. you can find essentially. The um, I want to go back to this question uh, that Lloyd asked at the beginning about traditional cultures. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to write about mescaline is in in How to Change Your Mind, I really looked at the science of psychedelics. And it was in large part because it's a very fringe subject then, more fringe than it is now. And thanks I knew you. science. <laughs> what? Thanks to you, largely. Well, I mean, thank it, you. Maybe it helped a little bit in legitimizing it. But I knew that science was the way you could persuade people to take it seriously and, and wouldn't be talking about shamanism or or anything else. So, But I kept learning when I was studying this that, in fact, the foundation of psychedelic medicine that we, we think is this new science is ancient, right? And that we are drawing on shamanic practices. Uh, our doctors are when they're prescribing these drugs and, 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 and setting people's expectations. And it's indigenous knowledge that's behind a lot of the field. So in this book, I really wanted to look at that and see what we might have to learn from the, the, the indigenous use of psychedelics. And because my premise is that the, the Western use of psychedelics, when they showed up in the 50s and 60s, we didn't really know what they were. We didn't really have a very good understanding and, and we didn't know how best to use them. And we did some really crazy, stupid things. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you would put LSD in the punch bowl, not you, but maybe you, but people would. And, and No, I never would. did that, but I know what you mean. We did not know how to use these things. Uh, and they we came didn't. without an instruction manual. And, right. Uh, and we, of course, there were people who could have taught us, but we didn't respect them enough. There was a couple mm -hmm. exceptions. Um, Andy Weil, for example, uh, had spent all this time in uh, South America, and he knew a lot about indigenous use. And he wrote about it in The Natural Mind, which is a wonderful book, uh, a book mm -hmm. he wrote in like three weeks when he was 28 years old. I, I highly recommend it. And his, his premise, and, and I think it tests out, is that these these uh, groups can teach us how to use these drugs better than we have been. And there are a few basic principles underlying indigenous use. There's usually an elder involved, a shaman or a medicine carrier. There's, um, uh, they're, they're not taken casually. There's always a kind of sense of occasion, intention. Uh, they're usually done in a group setting, um, which is interesting too. Uh, and they're always surrounded by ritual. And these, I think these principles have a lot to teach us. And that's why I wanted to look at the Native American church uh, and also the um, Wachuma ceremonies of, uh, of Peru uh, in this book. Um, but you've spent a lot of time with indigenous peoples and, 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 and looking at their use. Are there other things that we have to learn? Well, yeah, I think there's, there's always more to learn. But the point you make is very important, which is that this is a group of medicines that requires a vessel and, you know, was sometimes, you know, called the set in the setting. These are very important. And whatever the set in the setting is, it's important that there be one, a ritual structure. It may be traditional. It may be some kind of neo-shamanic modern adaptation of traditional practices you know, or it may be something else. But the important thing is that there is a vessel. There's a structure yeah, a for this to happen. Container. Yeah. These are not medicines. Hopefully they never will be where the instruction is take two and call me in the morning. Yeah. 
or take you know, one every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. Or take and, and don't bother to call me at all. You know, yeah. this requires the active participation of the person that's having the experience or persons, the elder or the maestro, the curandero that's, that's orchestrating it or the, or the therapist, you know, and the, the environment, you know, it, it has to be appropriate. And, uh, uh, you know, the set and setting, the setting has got to be appropriate. And then the set is really your mindset that comes to it. And, and, you know, the, the benefits of the experience will be directly proportional to how thoughtfully you approach it, how informed you are about it. Uh, so there's preparation and then there's the experience and then there's integration and in those three phases, you get the most out of it and you get the therapeutic benefits that you get. Not that recreational use can't be, well, recreational and fun, not necessarily harmful. Often you can learn from that. But ideally, if you're doing serious psychedelic uh, work, you need those elements of a well-structured set and setting and intention and, and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, and I know lots of people who had, you know, wonderful experiences and their set and setting was a Grateful Dead concert or a music festival. And um, and that use for many people has been, you know, profound and, and very useful. But I think that by approaching it the way we're describing, you can minimize the kind of adverse events that did happen, um, that people did right. get in trouble and had, you know, sometimes terrifying experiences and one of the things that's telling about this research agenda is that the number of adverse events has been very low, if, if any, um, and that mm -hmm. even bad trips become very therapeutic uh, when, they're, when someone is with you to help you process them. Um, so, and, and, and also, I'm, we're talking, I think, about a high dose. I think that there are doses where the, you know, the more casual use is, is, is not going to be a problem. Yeah, and yeah, that's right. There's, there's got to be, uh, and and uh, your your point about bad trips is, uh, you know, is well taken. There is no such thing as a bad trip. You know, there could be chat. Well, I guess, I guess a bad trip would be one you don't survive. <laughs> you know, but that's that's pretty rare. Anything short of that, even though these trips can be very challenging they're learning opportunities, you know, they're challenging for a reason. So again, this is where your preparation, your expectation, uh, your advanced knowledge of what may happen, all that is useful, you know, will be yeah. useful to help optimize, uh, optimize the, the trip. Yeah. And, and it's important to remember that whatever comes up is the product of your mind. It's not the molecule, right? The molecule is a catalyst. Um, right. whatever you experience this imagery or childhood trauma or whatever negative things come up, you're learning something about yourself. These are holding a mirror up to you. And sometimes exactly. what you see in that mirror is terrifying. But that's the point. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, not, not that it's terrifying, but that it really does hold a mirror. I mean, here's the, the big difference between, you know, psychopharmaceuticals like SSRIs, for example, they don't really get at the root of your problems. You know, they are band-aids. They kind of, uh, you know, paper it over. 
psychedelics with the right kind of set and setting, follow-up integration and all that can actually help you get at the root of your depression, your trauma, your uh, you know, addiction or whatever your issues are and actually cure it, you know, and actually resolve the problem, which is one reason why I'm puzzled uh, about all the ex- excitement about psychedelics in the, you know, in the pharma industry. All, a lot of these companies are jumping on board, but do they pause to think that ideally when these things are used properly and they people realize the benefits from them, a person might take them maybe two or three times in a lifetime. You know, these are yeah. not things that you take every day for the rest of your life, unless you're... you know. And that's a tremendous challenge. Uh, and nobody has figured out a business model to profit from psychedelics. And I frankly yeah. hope they don't. Um, but uh, they're certainly trying and they're trying to patent them, uh, which is also an issue since they continue to grow uh, in nature mm-hmm. and, and can't be stopped. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's going to be hard to fit into the pharmaceutical uh, structure we have since the industry is based on uh, chronic diseases and taking, taking a pill you need every day. And this is a very short-term intervention. You're going to sell somebody two or three pills over the course of their lives. How much can you <laughs> charge for them? Well, you can charge for the therapy. Um, and there is a lot of therapeutic support that's required. Yes. And, 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 and that's a challenge to the talking therapy industry, which they're also based on the weekly visit that goes on and on and on and on. And this is going to be this intense period of, I don't know, 20 hours, uh, you know, virtually all at once. And then nothing. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch how people try to monetize this. Um, and it's not at all clear, even though already lots of money is being made, but it's mostly the money that comes from, uh, you know, initial stock offerings. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it is going to be a challenge for these for these companies to adapt to this. And, and again, in this context, if we, you know, if we want to look at the way that indigenous people use these substances and integrate them into their lives. What I would like to see happen in North America is what already exists in South America and other places where these things are used. I mean, there are lots of negative aspects about ayahuasca tourism and all that. And, you know, that's kind of another conversation, but the point is that, uh, in these indigenous cultures, especially the ones that are not, yet so impacted by Western culture, Western economies, Western values. Uh, you know, the, the, the practitioner, the shaman, the curandero is just some ordinary person, you know, who happens to have knowledge of these medicines and, and as a resource for their community. I would like to see, rather than clinics, I'd rather see healing centers or, or you know, something similar to what you find in South America exists in North America. Like every community could have a community center where among other types of uh, holistic health offerings, maybe dietary counseling, yoga, massage, all that stuff, psychedelics are just one of the things on the menu. Mm-hmm. You know, and people can come there and bring the kids, spend the weekend, and they'll look like spas, not like clinics. You know, they'll be healing so you get your centers. body wrap and your massage and your psychedelic journey. You got it. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. But how are and we going to make that accessible to people? Because that's going to be expensive. Spas are expensive. But not, a, yeah, but they can be reasonable. You know, yeah, there will be expense, not as expensive as paying $30,000 for a clinical study with, with psilocybin. <laughs> you know, the cost differential will be somewhat less. Yeah. But yes, that's another thing. We need to try to, uh, uh, you know, keep the cost down. We need to address this issue. There's a certain faction of people that are, uh, involved in this that said, well, you know, this is, these are only safe in the hands of clinicians, you know, so they want to co-opt it and, uh, and, and that creates a dichotomy. It's like the only safe psilocybin is synthetic psilocybin, for example. I don't agree with that. I think that people should have the right. If they want to go into the woods and pick mushrooms, this should be, this should not be uh, prohibited. You know, I mean, it comes down to this fundamental fact that these are symbiotic relationships. And I think one of the things that we need to start articulating is that we have a right to symbiosis with any organism in the environment, as long as we use it responsibly, you know. and, and it's, I agree it's, with you. I completely agree with you. And yeah. I think if, if we only medicalized psychedelics, um, they have a lot of value for people who are not clinically diagnosed with a um with a mental illness um and, yes and, but i i think that the world that exists now which is to say you know actual mushrooms grown by individuals who are guides and and treating people underground is not going to go away um in fact no the more medical research there is the more popularity that that route is um, the value of the medical uh, path is that it could lead to coverage by national health or by uh, insurance. And that, right. and that is how you make it accessible. So I, I don't think I, I wouldn't dismiss that path, but it just shouldn't be the only path. And there's a third path, too, which is opening up, which is a religious path. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we already have three in America. We've got these three churches, two ayahuasca churches, one the Native American church, which uses peyote. Um, and there are a whole lot of new churches forming. And I think some of them are going to be made legal. I think it'll be possible to go to a, a church and have your psilocybin experience in that context. And, and that's very exciting also. Lloyd, I wonder if we shouldn't take some questions. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you're welcome. Uh, I'm speaking to the audience to type your questions in the chat. But if you're feeling bold, um, unmute yourself and get asking I just had a quick question if um, the gentleman thought that maybe with the big push um, in the UFO community uh, where, where we're, you know, acknowledging these craft, do they think that in, in, in any way we can use this plant medicine to maybe communicate with either other dimensional uh, beings or extraterrestrials? And, and I'll, I'll mute myself to shut up. Well, I don't know. And yes, I, I, brother. <laughs> right. I thought you might. Uh, I uh, honestly, Scott, I think the jury's out. You know, I mean, what assumption about you know? There, there are two views of of the experiences that you have with psychedelics, and one is that these come out of your head. These are experiences that uh, your brain gins up and, and you have them and they don't really have, uh, they don't come from outside. But then many people on 
psychedelics, especially mushrooms or ayahuasca, have the sense of being in communication with intelligences and, uh, you know, whether extraterrestrial or extra-dimensional, it's hard to say. It's very hard to, how would you test that? What would you do to verify that? That's, that's the tricky part. Or is it a part of yourself that is presenting as something that's not yourself? You know, and uh, or is it some combination? I mean, uh, you know, the the the, the uh, other uh, question here is, you know, we don't know what the boundaries of consciousness are. I was just reading uh, an article a day or so ago about panpsychism, you know, and the idea that consciousness exists at every level of organization from the from you know the quantum to the cosmic, that intelligence and consciousness of a form is just a fundamental property of reality, you know. And we, when you see, and, and it tends to emerge in these complex systems that, with the degree of uh, complexity, seems to be related to the element of the, you know, the quality of consciousness. But it's there at the most fundamental levels. But then we experience. So that's a long-winded way of saying I, uh, I don't know the answer, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't either. Um, I think it's very interesting that a, a common um, result of psychedelic experience is questioning the simple physicalist explanation of consciousness as a product of brains. And there is this sense you often have that consciousness exists outside of you as well. And, um, and, it, and it opens your mind to that. It's not proof of that, but it certainly um, makes you more open to considering the possibility of things you would have considered just kind of weird and crazy otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got two questions. Um, I've also got Matt uh, Medina, whose hand's raised. Um, if you wish to unmute yourself, Matt, so feel free to ask. Sure thing. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, this is really for either of you, but... Um, I'm wondering for education to get into this field, you know, there's so many avenues, but I guess if we're getting into the ethnobotany and if we could stick to that, you know, what would you recommend for, you know, course materials and what schools, you know, what programs are more, sorry, more holistic in their teaching? Like they incorporate a wide variety of, you know, like they don't just shun indigenous teachings and, it's not strictly Western science, not strictly one or the other. Right, right. Well, unfortunately, I wish I could say that there are, there were programs in ethnobotany or ethnopharmacology all over the place. As a matter of fact, they're extremely rare. You know, I mean, there should be whole departments devoted to this. And actually, they... They're not. They've been kind of marginalized, and uh, there aren't. There are a few places. For example, I think it's uh, a guy named Michael Heinrich. I think he is at King's College London. He has a pretty active program in ethnopharmacology. Uh, you know, uh, there's a there are university programs out there. You know that that uh, one one thing perhaps worth mentioning here uh, as you have to commute, you have to connect with the community of interest and one organization that I always recommend to people join 
the Society for Economic Botany. Uh, that is the closest you can come to an organization in which ethnobotany figures really high. And, and through that, I mean, there's special rates for students and so on. Join the Society for Economic Botany and it'll give you an idea what the state of the art is in terms of academic programs. That's a good way to begin to connect. I do want to mention, since you, since you raised it, uh, here's a chance to plug the McKenna Academy, but we're, we're planning to offer uh, a, uh, a course in ethnobotany beginning in September in collaboration with uh, the Organization for Tropical Studies, which uh, is based in Costa Rica. So you can find more out about that if you go to the McKenna Academy, but we're going to create that ethnobotany course and that will be virtual and online and so on. Wonderful. There will be scholarships for that program? We're looking for people to fund scholarships, yes. If you know any wealthy people that would like to (laughs) help uh, pay poor starving students, uh, we'd we'd like to hear from them. Yeah, we'd like to be able to offer... (laughs) Uh, some scholarships for sure. Thank you so much for your answer. Sure. Um, so the next questions are from Stephanie Morgan because you got first in the chat. So uh, feel free to unmute yourself and ask away. Hi, thank you so much for being here and doing this. I have a lot of respect for you both. And um, my question is maybe kind of simple, which is just how is something like LSD, which is synthesized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how is that different than any other drug in the pharmaceutical world? You know, we have mushrooms that grow in the ground and then, and, and other plant medicines. And then we have things that are made in a lab. And I, it's hard for me to make that jump to see those as sort of equal since we've sort of mucked, mucked with. Yeah. To get so- there. Even though LSD is synthesized, it's based on, uh, it's derived from a molecule produced by a fungus, the ergot fungus, right. which grows on grain. So even, you know, some of the, the drugs we think of as, as synthetic are still modeled on plant chemicals or, or fungal chemicals. Um, mm-hmm. There's a tendency to romanticize, I think, drugs that come from plants rather than from laboratories, but there are a lot of valuable drugs produced in laboratories. Um, we're not as good as the plants in general. I mean, they've, they're much more original. But like if you take the example of Sasha Shulgin, who was the great psychedelic chemist in the 70s and 80s, um, and he invented lots of new synthetic uh, psychedelics, um, he started by tweaking the mescaline molecule. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, adding this, taking this out. Um, so I don't think there's a hard and fast rule about what you're describing. Um, sometimes chemicals in their, uh, uh, psychoactives in their plant form are safer and milder, like coca leaves compared to cocaine. Um, but in other times, the natural form might have lots of uh, other alkaloids that make you sick. Um, so Dennis, you want to add something to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that. There's nothing inherently superior about natural uh, natural drugs. Uh, you know, I mean, traditionally uh, in science, this is what medicinal chemists, medicinal chemistry has often been about, not just for psychedelics, but they often start with a natural molecular compound, a natural structure, and then they tweak it, you know, to make it 
give it better pharmacokinetics or more selective for whatever its target is, or often just to make it sure it's patentable, you know, yeah. because natural products are harder to patent. But, you know, uh, synthetics are, are fine. I mean, and the, and the work that Shulgin did proves this. I mean, the, the compounds that he related to, I mean, they were, he, he used to talk about their little drug souls, you know, to him, you know, these compounds carried their own mystery, you know, and uh, it's a tribute to, uh, you know, people's creativity that they can take these natural products and modify them. And, you know, I like to remind people that all drugs are natural because they either come from plants or fungi or they're made by all natural organic chemists, you know, <laughs> who are part of nature as well, <laughs> you know. So uh, I don't see anything inherently, uh, you know, better about synthetics than, uh, you know, or about plants and fungi other than well, one of the factors might be that you can be more sure what you're getting if you go with a natural uh, drugs, something like MDMA out on the street, it could be any damn thing, you know, and there's really no way to tell unless you submit it to a lab for analysis. So just it's inherently, you know, but it's hard to fake mushrooms or, uh, you know, ayahuasca. These are, you know, you, you can be confident that it is what it represents itself to be. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so the next question I've got uh, is from Maria Estevez. Um, if you'd like to unmute yourself and uh, ask away. Hi. Hello, everybody. Greetings from Spain. Thank you very much for being here. This is really, really interesting. And uh, I wanted to ask a question related to uh, LSD. I recently learned that there is a substance that is called LSA, and uh, that is very similar to LSD and that it can be extracted from plants or flowers like the morning glory and similar flowers. I don't remember the name. And I was wondering if it's safe to consume LSD, LSA because I've heard that it can cause nausea and headaches and stuff. And if it's similar to LSD, because it's very, very hard to find LSD nowadays, especially good LSD, at least in Spain. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about LSA. Thank you. I know nothing about it. Dennis, do you know anything about it? Of course. <laughs> I know things about it. So LSA is a natural compound. It's very similar to LSD, which is a semi-natural compound, right? It's a semi-synthetic, but it started out with a natural ergot alkaloid. And they're, they're, as a class, these things are called ergot alkaloids because they come from the fungus ergot you know, this parasitic fungus that grows on rye grain. LSA, lysergic acid amide, has an effect similar to LSD. It's not as potent, but, you know, it, it does have a similar effect. Another one is ergonovine, which is another natural compound that also has important medical applications in, in obstetrics for, uh, for example, stimulating labor and, and uh, interfering with postpartum hemorrhage. All of these ergot alkaloids have these obstetric qualities as, as well. Uh, but LSA uh, is one of those. And, and the, the natural source, you, you, you can't really source ergot 
but they also occur in the morning glories. You mentioned the morning glories and the morning glories have uh, certain species of morning glories have these lysergic acid derivatives and they have traditional uses and so on. One of the most uh, potent uh, morning glories uh, with these alkaloids is, uh, is called the Hawaiian baby wood rose. And it's not Hawaiian and it's not a wood rose. It's a morning glory, but that's the common name. And it has very high levels of these LSA and uh, ergonovine so that the seeds of baby Hawaiian wood rose, which you can order online from a few places, uh, but the seeds, you know, the, the active dose of the seeds is somewhere between eight and 15 seeds is a full dose unlike the other morning glories, which you have to take about 600 seeds. Uh, but yeah, and, and like all, like many, I won't say all, but, but like a lot of plants, there's often an element of nausea and so on. Uh, and that just kind of comes with the territory. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's the place to look, I think, for a natural source of psychedelics. It also happens to be a beautiful plant. It's it's a, it's sometimes called the silver morning glory. So you can order it and grow it, you know, uh, in your garden, and then you have a lifetime supply, you know, of a natural and really quite quite good psychedelic. I've been I've been puzzled why uh, 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 Hawaiian woodrose has not been more popular because I, you know, it produces an excellent. LSD-like experience. Mm, thank you very much for your answer. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so time's running out, so I'm going to just take one last question, um, and I'm going to offer it to Dr. Sandra Dreisbach, uh, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Hi, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I was actually a part of uh, your talk a week ago where you I asked you about kratom and opiate. Mm. Um, dependency yeah. use, and you mentioned that you might actually look into it. So I was curious if you had any thoughts about um, Kratom. I know there's a lot of pressure right now um, happening uh, that the FDA is maybe going to take it to the World Health Organization and then to the UN to try and ban Kratom uh, on a worldwide scale. So I'm, that's part of the motivation for it. And so I was curious if you'd looked into it or knew about it more. You know, I haven't had a chance. I've been doing this 24-7 <laughs> for the last three weeks. Uh, I'm very sorry I haven't done my research, but I'm but we have here on betting know who knows something about Kratom. And that's Dennis. Thank you. you know, I understand. I do. <laughs> well, it's unfortunate because because Kratom, Kratom, Kratom is <laughs> it is an opiate. Uh, it it uh, is an effective pain reliever. It has a tradition of use in Southeast Asia. And it's actually often used for to help people who are hooked on opium or heroin to taper off, you know. And it and it turns out the the molecules, a couple of molecules, uh, the main molecules in kratom, mitragynine and seven hydroxy mitragynine, uh, unlike conventional opium alkaloids, they do not have the uh, effect of suppressing respiration. So the risk of overdosing from kratom is extremely low compared to conventional opiates. Absolutely. So 
it's it's part of the solution. It, it shouldn't be banned. It should be viewed as an alternative to synthetic opiates that people could access and, and again, potentially grow it in their garden. This is one reason I was so fascinated in Michael's book about the chapter about poppies. You know, I mean, I guess on some level, I had some idea that poppies were out there, but the idea that, yeah, you could go into your garden and harvest these poppies, which, you know, almost everyone has, and dry them out and make tea out of them, uh, uh, you know, to uh, most people would do that to relieve pain. And here's a natural home remedy that's already in your garden. And, you know, that's an interesting thing because I think in that form, it can be used pretty safely. And, uh, you know, had we known this before OxyContin came along, a lot of people might've used that instead of, you know, used homegrown poppies. Uh, I have a lot of chronic pain and we, I happen to have some poppies in my garden. I probably shouldn't even be saying this in public, but <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of pressure on this right now. And well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's um, just to clarify the legal situation, growing poppies, uh, it's perfectly legal to grow the, the flower and, and the mm -hmm. seeds are sold as papaver somniferum and you can make a mild narcotic tea from it or you can make something stronger by taking the heads and soaking them in alcohol and vodka that's laudanum a tincture mm -hmm. um, but the moment you form the thought of uh, making a drug from the poppy you are breaking the law at least in the United States right. um, how do they know you have that thought well <laughs> by my book you're guilty. <laughs> there you go. Right. Thank you right. both very much for answering the question. So I, like, it really does save lives. So thank you for much for bringing up, especially with heroin and opiate and, and dependency. So thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, it's complex. All these things are complex. Yeah. I want to thank everybody for your questions and for coming today and for listening to Dennis and I. I know I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Um, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. And Dennis, thanks so much for, for being here and Lloyd and Libraria and Second Home. Thank you for listening to this discussion. I wish to thank Michael and Dennis for sharing their time and wealth of knowledge. To link with the psychedelic community in Britain, the best place to start is with the Psychedelic Society. They provide harm reduction education and events that assist in preparing, understanding and integrating psychedelics, as well as the many practices that mimic their capacity for healing, connection and creativity. Please note they don't offer guided sessions. They suggest the best place in Europe for psychedelic retreats is the Synthesis Institute. Visit our website liberia.io for news of future events and book recommendations. Thank you.